Welcome to the Epicenter Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Epicenter Church, visit epicenterchurch.com.au. Hey, if you're visiting with us, if you have been missed like for the last three, three weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called, I Can't Believe in a God Who?, and we've answered a whole heap of topics. And so the idea of this is to talk about the tension between, as far as the tension between what we believe in the church versus what the community outside perhaps believes about us here in the church. So to give you a quick, really quick overview of what it's looked like. So week one was, I can't believe in a God who's given us a faulty Bible to communicate with. Uh, week two was, I can't believe in a God whose followers and leaders are mostly hypocrites. I thought that one is phenomenal. Uh, last week, Adam Mitchell came and he shared on, I can't believe in a God who allows good people to suffer. If you've missed out on any of those topics, if you want any more depth or whatever it is in it, jump on podcast check it out or just jump on the Facebook page and catch up that way. If you missed out, catch up. If you just want to hear them again, feel free to do so again. Uh, We've had some great response from this series and today, whether fortunately or unfortunately, some people might be giving a sigh of relief. I know I am from trying to organize it, is that we are finishing the series with this. I can't believe in a God who says women should be silent in church. Closing with this one. Um, a relatively hard topic actually to talk about, to bring up to, like it's a never-ending rabbit warren that's not necessarily easy to traverse. So this topic has created disunity between the church and the community, between the church and itself. As far as outside the church, there's somewhat of a conception that the church is suppressive towards women. And a lot of that comes from this opinion Inside the church, you've got sects of the church that believe that this is the case as far as women are to be relatively silent, not to have leadership roles, not to do much, not to be involved in much, that they're very, very pigeonholed in what they can and can't do. So we're talking about that uh, this morning. I'm going to quickly pray and then we'll get into it. All right. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have, Father, to talk about um, this topic and this issue, Jesus. And I pray that as I um, share with what I feel like you've placed on my heart to share, Father, I pray that it does a few things, God. I pray that first and foremost, it encourages us. But God, I pray that, pray that it also challenges us to step into who it is that you have called us to be in Jesus' name. And everybody said, who's done like traveling? Who's traveled as far as like world travel like, and experienced different cultures? Have you discovered that different cultures are weird in comparison to what you're used to? Like if that's your culture, it's completely normal. But like to that culture, like to a culture that's foreign to yours, it's messed up. Would that be correct? Hey, have you been to like a third world? So those of you that have been to a third world country will discover that it's crazy. Like the culture and the traditions between us and them are they're worlds apart, literally worlds apart. You could nearly feel like you just stepped into another galaxy. In, in some instances. I remember maybe four or five years ago, I was in Senegal, which is up the northern part of the continent of Africa, just, just near France. Um, French, France. It's a, that place. And, and I was catching up with some friends over there and we went to this, it was the first day they went to this ice cream store to get some ice cream because they were raving about how good this ice cream store was, which is unique. So I don't really even like ice cream. But I went there nonetheless and we all got our serves of ice cream, jumped back in the car and started like, 
heading out. And as I knew would happen, because my eyeballs at times are bigger than my stomach, and I got way too much ice cream, and I didn't even like ice cream, I plowed through as much of it as I could, but couldn't finish the rest of it. And no one in the car wanted it. They didn't like what I'd picked, and they were too full with theirs. So I thought, well, I'll instead of throwing in the bin, we'll stop and we'll give it to someone in the street. Thought it was a great idea. So we're, we're driving along and we, we see this little girl playing on the side of the road. So like, all right, let's stop and give it to this, this kid. So she's playing on the street. We stop the car and I start calling to this girl to come over and she's ignoring me. She's not saying anything. She's not responding. I'm like, kid, come on, come on, come on. Like I'm calling, I'm yelling and nothing. She doesn't even turn around. So the guy that's in the car driving, he turns to me, he says, you got to hiss at them. I'm like, what do you mean hiss at them? He said, you got to hiss at them. So I had, I stuck my head out the window and went, hiss, hiss, hiss. And still there was nothing. And so he winds his window down. He's like, straight away the girl jumps up, looks at him, comes straight over the car and handed the ice cream. I was just absolutely blown away. Like that's, I do that to a cat and a dog when I don't like them. Or a horse, like if something goes wrong, you hiss at an animal when you're telling them off, don't you? Well, at least I do. Anyways, but I, I, found, I found it really unique that he hissed at her and she didn't run away. She didn't come over and slap him. She came over to respond to what it was that we were doing, what to give to her. And what he went on to say to me, that's how they relate to each other. That's how they communicate. That's how they get each other's attention. That's how they call one another over. They hiss. So if I start hissing at you, that's what I'm meaning. That's a joke. <laughs> in, um, in, like in Northern Australia, I don't know if it's the same down here, but in, in the Aboriginal communities in Northern Australia, they've got a unique thing as well, where before the man marries his to-be bride, he will communicate with the to-be mother-in-law. Like you talk to her, they'll have some kind of discussion. The day that they get married is the last day that that man will ever talk to his mother-in-law. And then if they're in the same room together, he will always have his back to her. That's their culture. Whether or not that happens like in Aboriginal culture down here, but up north, that's the culture. It's, it's different. Some of you guys are like, oh gosh, that's good. Which if you're thinking that, you can repent for that too. So, but like, uh, like ha, wherever you go around the world, there's different cultures. But have you noticed that what we perceive as offensive, perhaps to someone else is offensive, like to, to the Aboriginal women, they don't feel offended by. That's their culture. That's their tradition. That's how they've been brought up. I'm not necessarily saying what's right or not what's wrong. We're not entering into any of that um, this morning. But that, that's their culture. Same thing with getting hissed at. They're not offended by it because... They understand it. They've grown up with it. That's what they, how they relate. They don't feel offended by it. And what I've discovered is that when we're dealing with culture, it's generally when there's an opposing culture to ours starts getting forced upon us. That's when we jump up and down. That's when we get upset generally, isn't it? That's where we struggle with it because it's not what we're used to. It's not what we like. And I think it's very similar with this discussion with, I can't believe in a God who says women should be silent in church. Perhaps a great question to even start with is this, does the Bible even say that women should be silent in church? Yes, it does. You want to bring the first slide up, please, uh, Will. So it says this, 1 Corinthians 14. So this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says this, women should be silent during the church 
meetings. I think, sorry, to backtrack a little bit. Oh, majority of scripture at least is this. They're individual letters written to individual people or at least a group of people addressing a particular issue talking about specific things. And so here the author is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, dealing with specific issues. Now the issues that he's dealing with, if you were to backtrack and read like chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, is he's dealing with how the church is going about things. They're getting together. They're eating too much. So they have communion and it's not just a bread and a little cup. They're having a full-blown meal. They're eating too much. And then other people aren't eating enough. And then they're getting drunk, and there's all sorts of things that are taking place. And so he's addressing that here, and he's still in the process of addressing it. So if you put that back up, I think it's, I think it's wise when we're reading divine literature as far as something that God's given us as wisdom to understand the culture that he was writing it to in the first place. So that's the culture that he was writing to. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It goes on, and he says, It is not proper for them to speak. So they should not talk because it is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. Now, a note there, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that. He's not talking about Bible law. He's talking about cultural law. Okay? Submissive, just as the law says, if they have any questions, they should ask their husbands at home, not at church, not in the car on the way home, but wait till you get home before you say anything, before you talk at home, for it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. It is not proper. Women should be silent in church because it is not proper for them to speak, for it is improper for them to communicate. It's really interesting when you note about how the world worked then. Plutarch, Plutarch, however you pronounce it in the next slide, he, he wrote this. He was a philosopher of about that time, amongst other things. He says, The virtuous woman ought to be modest and guarded about saying anything in the hearing of outsiders. She ought to do a talking either to her husband or through her husband. So if you had something to say, if Sage, my wife, had something to say in a meeting, not just a church meeting, but a meeting in general, If she wanted to say something, she would come to me, she would tell it to me, and then I would express it. She wouldn't express it. For there's a simple reason, because women that talked in that culture were seen as loose. Women that talked outside of the home in that culture were seen as loose. Loose Loose-mouthed as well as loose morals. So there was a a particular class of, of women, and they were really, really high class prostitutes. And so these weren't just normal prostitutes that would have multiple, multiple um, clients in a day. They may have just a couple of clients throughout the course of their career. And what they would do, they, yes, there was sex involved, but the majority of it was all about company for high-ranking people, as far as wealthy people would employ these women to connect with them, go with them, so they'd go to social events and gatherings and political parties. These women would talk, and it was very widely held that these women would sway the political floor at these meetings. They would get together and they'd talk and they'd share. And, and what these guys were wanting, because the culture was that their wives were not educated. They did not want their wives to talk. So when they came to a meeting, they did not want their wives to talk because their wives weren't educated. But what they found in this group of people, this high-class call girl, was that they had someone that wasn't their wife, that was educated, was understanding, that was proper as well in how they conduct themselves and would verbalize. And so you, you put everything in together and what's happening in the, in the background 
of what's taking place in, in chapter 14, specifically of 1 Corinthians. But even in, in the background is you've got the Corinthian church having this understanding of freedom. Understanding that we can step out, we can do this, but it's creating confusion. You see, Scripture is for this reason. Like all these letters that were written throughout the Old Testament, and specifically the New Testament, are to draw people closer to Jesus. That's the point of the Bible, to draw people closer to Jesus. And so what Paul's highlighting to them is that you're missing the point. You're not even drawing yourselves closer to Jesus, but specifically, if someone else walks in, they're confused. So he said, that's why he says to them, you're getting together and you're eating too much and other people are going hungry. You're drinking too much. And then you've got this going on. You're talking too much. And he's not just saying the women are talking too much. He says the guys are talking too much as well. You're abusing the, the gifts that we've given you. Everything is in excess. Everything is in a place that's messed up. And so what he's, what he's trying to highlight is that the church... Jesus should be about embracing people, not confusing people. So if people walk into your meetings and you are just gorging yourself and you're drinking too much and your women appear to be loose, no one's going to want to listen to you, what you have to say, because their culture would say that that is not husbands and wives, but that is husbands with their mistress. And so what he's trying to say is just bring it in for a little bit. We want to transform the community. We want to transform the culture, but we need to bring this in just a touch for a minute so you can actually have a voice in the community. While this verse appears to be saying that women should be silent in church, if you read Scripture in its context, I believe the Scripture, I believe that Jesus has the very opposite to say as that. When we understand this in the lens of of culture, of Paul trying to deal with the culture of the time, trying to infiltrate the culture to be able to transform the culture, I think this makes complete sense. So if we're, we're going to jump into a story from, from the book of Acts about this man that wrote this letter to the Corinthian church. So this guy that just wrote this book from Corinthians, this letter, his name's Paul, like I said before, and we're going to jump in now and we're going to read from a book called Luke. Now, Luke was a doctor. He got to travel around scribing the ministry of Jesus, what happened in his life. But he also got to follow around Paul scribing what happens in Paul's life. So this is Luke scribing a day or a few days or maybe a year or two in the life of Paul. So Acts 18, it says this, Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. So he's left Athens. He's now heading to the place, Corinth, which is where he would later pen the letter to. So this is a church that we've just read the letter from, the Corinthian church. So he's heading to Corinth. There he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila. Everybody say Aquila. Born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife, Priscilla. Say Priscilla. Say Aquila and Priscilla. Have you noticed that people seem to marry like names that just work? Like my father's name's Kerry. My mother's name's Mary. It works. Robin Sage doesn't work. And they, <laughs> they, they, they had left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all the Jews from Rome. This is where he goes nuts. He gets angry with the Christians and Jews. And says, no one's got to hire me. You must escape. And then Paul, verse 3 says, Paul lived and worked with them, Priscilla and Aquila, or Aquila and Priscilla, however we want to term it at this point, for they were Tent makers. I like this. They were tent makers. And I like how it says that they were tent makers, not that he was a tent maker and she was the admin lady. You know how often it seems to be that if you see a, a women in the workplace that they seem to be admin. Like if Sage works in my business, oh, she can't be a farrier. She can't be a farmer. She must be the admin. She does all the book work. No, she doesn't do the book work. I do the book work. She does all the fencing. 
No one got that joke. I like it how that they were tent makers as far as they were both involved in business together. They were tent makers. Paul worked with them. As far as she had a brain to her, she just wasn't the one that was organizing the orders and that sort of thing, but she was actively making the tents. She was engaging with employees. She was engaging with customers. I like it that Paul was working with him and her. And I like this thought that she was Paul's boss. And perhaps that there was a whole lot of other people that were working there as well. And she was engaging with them, with her husband. It continues on, just as he was. So Paul was working with them. Each Sabbath found Paul at the synagogue. They were hard workers as far as he got one day off, six-day work week. On the Sabbath, he would go and minister, trying to convince the Jews and Greeks alike. Now, after Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul spent all his time preaching the world. He's escaped from the workplace now. And he testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul stayed in Corinth, so he's still in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby place that I can't pronounce and then set sail for Syria, taking Priscilla and Aquila with him. I like it how it changes here. Like up until this point, we've been introduced as Aquila and Priscilla and then it flips. If you notice you generally, like when you're going to someone's house and it's a husband and wife, you always... This, this is going to come out really, really wrong, but I don't know how else to do it, okay? It's going to be wrong. You kind of say the dominant person first. Like they're the, generally the, the bubbly person, the person that seems to be the leader. Not saying the other person's not the leader, but the one that seems to have the, is leading. You say it's them first. I go to John Denise's. John's here. Denise isn't at the moment, so I'll say that. If Denise was here and John was, and I'd say I'll go to Denise and John's. Is that correct, John? <laughs> I would be very wise. Has, has there, or am I the only one that does that? You, you seem to like you. If I go to Adam Rebecca's, it's Adam Rebecca. But when Jess and Dylan were here, some of you remember Jess and Dylan. Some of you won't. It's always Jess and Dylan's house. It was never Dylan and Jess. It was always Jess and Dylan's. Not that Dylan wasn't a, a great leader, but Jess was a bouncy one. She was in your face. She was leading. She was exciting and everything that came with her. Dylan was exciting as well when you got to know him. He was good. And so I I like it how it shifts from Aquila and Priscilla to Priscilla and Aquila. But I also like this. When Paul leaves, he takes them with him for a particular reason. Continue on. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well, had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. So this guy, he turns up, he's studied, like he's been to Bible college, he's read his Bible, he's watched all the YouTube clips that you can get on understanding and applying the scripture. He's great. Like this guy is smart. He's He's learnt, right? He had been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus enthusiastically with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. You discovered that person that only knows part of the story. In school, I tried this part of the story thing and it never worked for me. I hated reading. And so I remember, you know how you had to do your reading? Like every morning in school, you had to do your reading, come home, do your reading. I convinced mom and dad before they got home from work that I'd done my reader. And because they never, like I, I'd always get to school and the, the, the teacher would never challenge me on what I'd read. He just said, have you done your reading? Said, yes, I've done my reading. And so I was sure that I'd, I'd be able to get out of it. And so I'd read two pages in the back part of the book. I thought I was good. But this teacher, he smelt a rat. And when I got there that morning, he, he opened up the book and he said, have you read it? I said, yeah, I've read it. And he starts asking me questions. And I, I flicked through a couple of questions because I knew the blurb from the back. 
It was good. But then he asked me specific questions that I had to have read the book to discover it. I was that person. I only knew half the story. I got caught in an embarrassing situation. I got in trouble for that one. However, he only knew about John's baptism. He only knows part of the story. So Priscilla and Aquila, they do something. Continue on. It says this. When Priscilla... And Aquila, so Priscilla first, Priscilla and Aquila doesn't mean Aquila is not a leader, doesn't mean he's not a godly man, doesn't he mean he hasn't got leadership potential, but Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly. So they heard him, Priscilla and Aquila. Everybody say Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila heard him, heard him, you can say heard him, preaching boldly. Very good. In the synagogue, they, so both Priscilla and Aquila, took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. I love it. The Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him, took aside and preached to him, took him aside and opened the Bible and explained to him what it meant. There is a woman or a woman here preaching, talking to a man teaching him, being the one in the leadership role. I'm not saying Aquila didn't have a voice. I'm not saying that he didn't speak. I'm not saying that he didn't say something. But there's this definite theme that you read through specifically in this where she's the one doing a lot of ministry. Why? Because she's got leadership placed on her life. So comes Apollo comes along and these guys are listening to him and she realizes that God has placed something in her heart, this leadership ability, this understanding of Scripture that he needs to hear. And he's got the brains to listen to her. Because he sees the leadership that God's placed in her, not the other way around and missing it. Continue on. Apollos had been thinking about going to, these Greek words, they kill me. Paul, how do you say it? Achaia. Achaia. I always say it with a bad accent though. They've been going to Achaia and the brothers and sisters say brothers and Sisters, the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. So he's listening, not just dudes. He's listening to the chicks as well because he sees that they've got something on their lives. Then they wrote, who wrote? The brothers and the sisters, Priscilla and Aquila. The chicks and the dudes all wrote to the church in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. Basically, they're saying, I'm sending our blessing. This guy's good. You need to listen to him. He's got a good ministry. And then when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit for those who by God's grace had believed. Why was he of great benefit? Because one woman realized that she had a gift from God on her life, a gift of teaching, a gift of explanation, a gift of understanding that she sowed into his life, that she spoke into him and he received it. He listened to it and he took it on board. So then when he got to where he was going, he was of even more benefit and use. Continue on. He refuted, this is when he gets to, this is Apollos. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate using scriptures he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. He got him at the start turning up, not understanding that Jesus was the Messiah, understanding that Jesus was a good dude, but not understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. Then gets to the end, explaining, you can drop that slide, explaining that Jesus was something. He was the Messiah. As far as he was a savior that they were looking for, he was God incarnate. And that's what ultimately he started explaining to them. And all of this took place because one woman realized that God had given her a gift. God had given her leadership abilities. God had given her talents. It wasn't just, she wasn't just a wife. I don't know if she had kids, but she wasn't just a mother. She was a business owner. She was an entrepreneur. But she wasn't just that. She was a, she was a leader in the church. 
She was a leader in that community. She was a leader that people respected, looked up to. And when she spoke, people listened because they realized the grace that God had given her to communicate. The truth is this, if we put up the next slide, that women are leaders, not breeders. That's actually not meant to be funny, Belinda. It's okay. Now you laugh, it is kind of amusing. But it's kind of amusing in that we have created women to be one thing, breeders. Not necessarily breeders, but all they can do is raise kids. All they can do is look after the home. And I know for the most part, our culture has moved on from this a long way, but we still are there to some degree where we look at women as breeders rather than leaders. You can take that down before everyone keeps laughing at me. And I think by doing that, we've, we've completely robbed ourselves of the leaders that are around us. I think we've completely robbed women of what God's placed in them. You see, when I look at Scripture from the beginning to the end, I see this theme of God instilling leadership in humans. Not guys, not chicks, people. God loves people. He doesn't love guys. God loves people. He doesn't love women. God loves people. It's regardless of what gender we are. You see, leadership isn't determined by gender. Leadership is determined by what God has placed in your heart to outwork, to do, to work at, to move with. Genesis, in, if you put up the next slide, in the creation narrative, in the Christian creation narrative where God creates the, the world and God creates people, it says this, then God said, let us make human beings in our image. So he says, let us make Human beings, chicks and dudes, male and female, let us make people in our image in to be like us as far as to have leadership giftings, to have the same characteristics, have all of that human beings in our image to be like us. Continue on. 27 says that they will, they will reign. Human beings will reign. Male will reign. Female will reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. I like those scurrying little creatures. They get to hunt them. They get to have the dominion over them. They get to look after them. They will, not just guys, not just chicks. It's not one or the other. It's both and that they will do it. And it continues on. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Everybody say male and female. He created them. God created human beings. He created man. He created woman in his image with the same qualities as God, with the same leadership abilities as God. Does that mean every single one of us has got the exact same qualities? No, we're all different. We've all got different aspects of God that he's deposited in all of us. But in all of us resides leadership. In all of us resides love. In all of us resides love for people. In all of us resides all of that. Not just one group of people. You can drop the slide, Matt. Not just one group of people. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, the whole idea or part of at least the idea was to bring us back to our former self, how God initially intended us to be as he created mankind in the garden. The whole part of the idea of the, of the, of the cross of the, in the resurrection of Jesus is to reunite people back to how God created them to be through the acceptance of Jesus. And for so long, we've worked the opposite. The church has, the community has, people have, individuals have, husbands have. We've worked the opposite to suppress women. 
part of that's come from a cultural thing that we've began to change and began to shift. But I believe that what God wants to do is bring everyone back to how He created them to be in the garden, as, how, as far as how God created human beings to be. Equal players, both with leadership, both with giftings, both with a voice, both with authority. You know, what I find really unique is, is this. And I, I do understand that for the most part, our community, as far as our culture in Australia, has moved a long way from being suppressive towards women. I'm not saying we are completely there. Um, the church, for the most part, has moved a long way from shifting that as well. I'm not saying that we're there yet. As a matter of fact, I would like to think that as a church, we do the opposite of suppressing women. That's definitely our goal. And if it, like before I, I, I start ending this, if you have ever felt suppressed because of anything that I've said or we've said as a church, that is not our heart. We want to release all people into the gifts, the callings, the talents that God has placed in their heart. So if you at any time have felt oppressed, suppressed by us, please come up and share that with me. I want an opportunity to repent. What I find really unique and fascinating is this, that we will allow our wives, our mothers to teach our children, to lead our our, our children. But at some point, they're not fit to lead that child anymore. That child grows up and he doesn't take leadership from them anymore, but he takes leadership from dad. I know that doesn't happen so much anymore, but here's another example. Keeping with the same sort of theme. I find it so fascinating, again, that we will release and we will realize the importance of women in the home as far as a nurturing mother. Equally so, a nurturing father. We, we realize that we value that and we will know the statistics of how detrimental it is if a child is raised in a home that doesn't have mum in it, just like if it doesn't have dad in it. And so we'll release mum to raise kids, to look after kids, to teach kids, to provide leadership in her home. But when it comes to the church, oh no, she can't do that. She's not gifted enough to do that. Oh, but yet she can provide leadership in the most important years of her of their kids' life. But no, she is not gifted to do that. When it comes to the corporate workplace, she has not got what it takes to do that. When it comes to government, no, she can't be in there. In the council, no, she can't be in there. I find it full of hypocrisy. Not just the church, the world. That we will say that women can lead in this area and they're phenomenal leading this area but no one else and so i wonder what we have robbed from our communities by not allowing the voice of women to lead us i wonder what we have robbed in our churches by not allowing the voice of women to lead us if we can look at see the damage that takes place when mum's not there in, in the home i wonder what damage that is completely reversible if we actively look at taking this approach of what Paul demonstrates with Priscilla and empowering and leading. If we took that approach and allowed the women around us to step up and lead. If we got out of the way to realize that they have a gift that's given to them by God, that's empowered them to lead, they've got gifts, they've got talents. I wonder, here's a thought, I wonder what would have happened to Apollo's ministry if Priscilla never came along? What would happen to Paul's ministry if Priscilla never came along? He took her and her husband for a reason. What would have happened to Paul's ministry if she didn't come along? 
And I could say the same thing about me, and I imagine you could ask yourself the same question. Where would you be without the prominent role of prominent women in your life? I know I wouldn't be very far without the role that my mother's played in my life, but not only my mother, but there's countless other women outside of my mother that have been strong leaders in my life that I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for them speaking into my life. We as a church need to be deliberate in empowering women, not suppressing women. We as a community need to be deliberate in empowering women, not suppressing women. I wonder what our community could look like, what our world could look like. Specifically, I wonder what our families would look like when we realize that women are empowered to lead equally so as us. What would change? What would shift? What would take place? How about you stand up? Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share this message, Jesus. And I pray that what we get to do with this, Father, is take it and apply it, Father. I pray that if, if we're that, that husband or we're that father or we're that, we're that male that has deliberately shut down the voice of, of women in their life because they didn't see the leadership, Father, I pray that we can be mature enough to repent of that and allow those women to speak into us, to sow into us, to gift us what God has deposited in them to do so. And Father, I pray for, for all the women, Father, whether here this morning or watching online, Father, I pray, Jesus, for a boldness to come over them. If perhaps they've been timid about stepping out in what it is that God has placed on their heart to do, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you empower them to boldness, with boldness, Father, to step out into that which you have called them to do, Father. Regardless of what people around them think or say, Father, I pray that they step out and they speak and they take that leadership role that you've given them with boldness. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. Please subscribe to hear more sermons from Epicenter Church. 